Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Alan Collins. I'm the head of the abuse team at Hugh James, and I am joined today by Professor Michael Salter, Professor of Criminology, University of New South Wales. Welcome back, Michael. It's great to have you back on one of these podcasts again. Always good to be with you. Thank you very much. At the start of these podcasts, I'm required to give a health warning because the subject matter invariably involves distressing matters because we are talking about sexual abuse and matters relating to sexual abuse. And of course, that can be very distressing. So if you are a listener who may be upset or distressed in some way by what we're going to talk about, now's the time to go and do something else, make yourself a cup of coffee or something. But if you're willing to stay with us. It's great to have you with us. And in this podcast, we are going to be discussing the anti-epistemology of organized abuse, ignorance, exploitation, and inaction. So anti-epistemology is a little bit of a a long word, and I had to practice a little bit to make sure I got my pronunciation correct. And Michael will correct me if I'm wrong. This is all to do with ignorance. So anti-epistemology is all concerned with basically lack of knowledge or ignorance, if you prefer to put it crudely. So we're going to be discussing the anti-epistemology of organized abuse. And I'm going to hand over to Michael and get Michael to explain to us the general introduction to the subject. So over to you, Michael. Can you explain to me and our listeners what the title means? I sure can. So uh, this is a paper that's forthcoming in the British Journal of Criminology. And anti-epistemology refers to the study of ignorance. So epistemology refers to the science and study of knowledge. So how do we know things? How do we understand things? And so anti-epistemology recognises that ignorance is not just the absence of knowledge, that ignorance is an active force. It's an active force in our lives and in society. That's particularly true when it comes to child sexual abuse. It's not simply the case that society lacks knowledge about child sexual abuse, but that society is beset by certain forms of ignorance about child sexual abuse, and those forms of ignorance are actively produced and created. So in this paper, I'm focusing particularly on the active production of ignorance about organised abuse. This refers to the sexual abuse of children by multiple adults who are acting in concert. And this has been a form of sexual abuse that the state, you know, my state, England, uh, countries all around the world have struggled to recognise and address sometimes even name. It's very rare that organised sexual abuse is even named by state authorities as a problem. Well, this is very timely for two reasons. Number one, at the time that we're recording this podcast, is Sexual Abuse Awareness Week. And secondly, the Independent Inquiry into Child Sex Abuse has recently published its own report on organised sexual abuse, particularly in a sort of criminal context, and it particularly focused on vulnerable children being caught up in organised crime, 
and how organised sexual abuse sort of dovetails with organised crime and how children and young people get involved in all of that. So your paper and this podcast, I would say, is extremely timely. And as I said, you know, today when we're recording this podcast, we're in the middle of Sexual Abuse Awareness Week. And one of the issues that's been flagged up is the general lack of understanding sometimes when it comes to child sexual abuse matters. You know, and it was pointed out to me the other day how some in the media will go and say, oh, this child has had a sexual relationship with a teacher or whatever. It's a contradiction in terms because child is too young to have a sexual relationship with his or her teacher, leaving to one side, you know, the criminality of it. Anyway, sort of getting a little bit carried away there because we need to start looking at what you want to explain to us about organised abuse in which tragically and horrifically multiple adults sexually abuse multiple children. So can you start to take us a little bit through that, please, Michael? Yeah, sure, Ken. And in fact, I mean, the, the recent report by the Independent Inquiry is quite a good starting point. So, you know, quite a thorough analysis of child sexual exploitation. But the overwhelming focus of the report is, of course, on abuse outside the family. So when we look in the United Kingdom, where child sexual exploitation is, is a much higher policy priority than it is in Australia, sexual exploitation of children in Australia continues to occur without much in the way of, of national policy attention. And that's not the case in the in the UK and in England. But the way in which it's framed is overwhelmingly in terms of, you know, street-based grooming uh, and, and so on. The paper that's coming out in the British Journal of Criminology is based on a, a global survey of 150 adults who identified that they were survivors of child sexual abuse material. So they'd been abused as kids and images or videos had been made of their abuse. Their abuse had been recorded. When we looked at the data, which comes from the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, what we found was that 50% of that 150 were victims of organised abuse. So they were reporting multiple offenders. Now, of that, say, 74, 75 respondents, 80% identified their parents as the primary perpetrator. And this is a really consistent pattern going back to the 1970s, ever since we first became aware of the existence of child sexual abuse material. Both children and adult survivors have been consistently reporting that their parents were the primary perpetrators. One of the things that the paper's interested in is that there's certain forms of child sexual abuse and certain forms of child sexual exploitation that remain unspeakable. So in the survey, we had one respondent who was a woman in her 70s in the Netherlands talking about organised abuse, talking about the production of, of, of images when she was a child, talking about going to school and nobody noticing and she was dissociating and trying to cope. And we had an almost identical report from a woman in her 20s in North America. And what was really extraordinary when I sort of stepped back and looked at the similarities between these two reports, these two women live two generations apart. One is 50 years older than the other. They live on the other side of the world to one another. And yet they weren't just reporting a similar pattern of sexual exploitation by their parents and so on. They were reporting a similar pattern of ignorance. These were women that were going to school. These were women that were coming, you know, as children, they were coming to the attention of a range of authorities. And yet nobody noticed, nobody did anything. And so it's great to see expanded awareness of child sexual exploitation. I don't begrudge anyone that for a moment. 
but there's still certain forms of child sexual abuse that somehow we're not allowed to talk about, we're not allowed to recognise, and the state continues to fail to target the sexual exploitation of children in the family as a particular policy area. So let's break that down. So why do you think that there is particular ignorance in this area? What does your study start to suggest why we are so ignorant when it comes to this particular area of sexual abuse of children and young people? I think there's two issues. I think one is practical and one is psychological. I think practically it is really difficult in liberal democracies to interrupt parental control and oversight of children unless a family is floridly dysfunctional and sort of falling apart. By and large, the state allows parents to do what they want with their kids as long as there's three you know, meals a day on the table and the kids are going to school. By and large, the state will leave parents alone. So we have an issue where there's sexual abuse within the family, but the family otherwise appears to be functional as far as external observer is concerned. You know, when we look in the United Kingdom, for example, there were attempts by child protection authorities in the 1980s to intervene in allegations of sexual abuse in otherwise apparently functional families. Now, those cases are now infamous, and I'm talking about Cleveland, for example, where in fact the medical evidence of child sexual abuse in the Cleveland case was actually quite strong, but it was the intervention of the state into these families that led to controversy that continues to the present day. So I think there's sort of a practical political issue about how does the state intervene appropriately into families that otherwise appear to be intact. I think the second one is psychological. And the fact is, is we're talking about the abject betrayal of children by people upon whom they depend wholly for their basic needs and and existence. I mean, I think that this is just a figure of such incredible vulnerability that I think psychologically it's really difficult for people to grasp onto the reality of this offence, which is very young kids, completely powerless, being abused by the people that they rely upon the most. I think that sort of strikes at the heart of a lot of people. And as a result, it becomes very easy to turn away. Right. And digging deeper into this, are there any particular traits or reasons or insights as to why parents would want to involve their children in situations where they could be subjected to multiple abusers, let alone one abuser? There's a number of scenarios that emerge in organised abuse. I mean, one of them is simply we just have to recognise some men are pedophiles but also have romantic relationships with with adult women. And so we, we have some men who get married and the intention when their partner falls pregnant, they have every intention of abusing that child and, and that may well be the reason why they, they start a family. So this is a, a kind of offender who is very difficult to catch. He's poorly studied because he's difficult to catch. Then forensic psychologists don't tend to see those offenders because they don't tend to get into prison. So I think, you know, that's a scenario that we need to wrap our heads around. There's also significant issues around intergenerational trauma in organised abuse. So it's quite common when we're dealing with a child or an adult survivor of organised abuse that their parent has also been subject to organised abuse. And so 
sometimes we're looking at families that are catastrophically traumatized and traumatizing. But it's not uncommon that these families maintain a kind of a middle class functionality. They're not necessarily falling apart. Certainly see cases where there is multiple abuse and generational abuse. So you see, by the time we see the case, it's grandfather who is in the spotlight. He would have abused his own children. And those children would have gone on and had their own children. And he ends up abusing the grandchildren. And it can go further into nieces and nephews and all that kind of thing. So you have what appears to be a solid family structure with grandparents and children and cousins and nephews and nieces and siblings and so on. But you have the center of the web, so to speak, the sex offender, the grandfather, the uncle, the father stroke uncle stroke grandfather. And uh, outward appearances, this is a family, multiple generations. And um, but yeah, something's burst open and the edifice has come crumbling down. That's absolutely right. So we see these family structures where that are structured around sexual abuse. And we can also recognize that we see more floridly dysfunctional families where there's, for example, quite a lot of drug use and involvement in um, the illicit trade in drugs. And those are also scenarios where children can be quite vulnerable to not just opportunistic abuse, but, you know, children can also be traded for drugs and so on. So there are a range of sort of scenarios, but what we find is the dysfunctional families are much more visible to the authorities and often have got a range of other involvements with the state anyway. So it's more likely the abuse comes to comes to light. You know, what's very pernicious and really challenging is these sort of middle, middle and upper class family structures where sexual violence is really central to, to family life, and that includes exploitation of the children. And what is interesting in sort of the two scenarios that we're talking about is the role of women. So we find say in some of these situations that the the woman is the passive participator maybe because it suits her and then you get the other situation where the mother is not so passive maybe she's got drug addiction issues and the child is a means to fulfill that addiction you know the child is effectively either traded or is a byproduct of, um, you know, dysfunctional relationships with dealers and other drug users. And look, this is a really difficult part of the conversation, but it's a really important one, which is that female perpetrators of child sexual abuse are a minority. Obviously, the majority of offenders are are male, but women are overrepresented as perpetrators of of organised abuse or co-perpetrators. So disproportionately, where women are offending against children, they're co-offending, there may be multiple offenders. And when we look at these scenarios, there's often a sense that the woman would not have offended against the child in the absence of the male co-offenders. But certainly, you know, the the female role in organised abuse is a really significant one. It is one that survivors bring to our attention a lot and they want to talk about. Sometimes, as you say, the mother is non-protective and passive. We also have scenarios where the mother is is a contact offender. You know, there's a number of cases where, to, to be frank, women are online on dating apps. They've been approached by by men online who have basically said to them, well, you know, I'll have a relationship with you, but first I want images of your child, for example. And we have cases, prosecuted cases, where women are just very ambivalent about their their own kids and they've been willing to produce child sexual abuse material for him. Now, when we talk publicly about this, 
it's actually quite common. We get a bit of backlash. That's been really that's been common for me. And the insistence that that these women are being physically coerced, that there's domestic violence and so on. And that's true in some of these situations. But I'm really sorry to report it's not true in the majority of the situations that I study. And I also do study domestic violence and coercive control and I've, I've published extensively in that area. We see different sorts of controlling dynamics in these families where the control is actually focused on the child. The, the, the control and the violence is not focused on the female partner. It's actually the child that is the centre of the uh, obsession of the offenders. Yeah, very, very difficult subject and, uh, you know, very um, unpleasant and, and upsetting. And it makes it very difficult to talk about. But again, it's very appropriate that we are talking about it, given that it is Sexual Abuse Awareness Week. So now that there is this knowledge, albeit it's not complete, and um, it may well be that we're just sort of digging away at the surface, where do we need to go next? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, you know, one of the areas that has broken this issue back open is actually child sexual abuse material, because when when we look online and when, when we trace images back online to their source, what we find is that there's a lot of content online that's being produced by by fathers who are sexually abusing their daughters. And when police start to crack, you know, those cases open, they're, they're coming across organised abuse. So they're coming across forms of abuse that previously we'd been told by academics and journalists, you know, this is a moral panic. You know, these are false memories. You can't trust these allegations. Well, you know, now we've got indisputable digital evidence that these allegations are not only true now, but I mean, certainly that suggests that they've always been true. And so I think there needs to be a reconsideration of some of the frameworks that we've developed in order to sweep these allegations under the rug. I think we need to, to revisit some of the claims that have been made about child sexual abuse as a moral panic, about organised abuse as examples of, of false memories. And we need to be willing to put the evidence together and look at the picture as a whole. You know, child sexual exploitation certainly takes place outside the family. Child sexual exploitation certainly takes place online. But child sexual exploitation is also taking place, particularly with very young children, within the family. And we need to be willing to put together the entire picture of child sexual exploitation and then dedicate our resources and our attention, not just to where it's most convenient or least uncomfortable, but to where the greatest area of, of need is. And, you know, my experience, you know, working as an academic is that organised abuse survivors where the primary offender is a parent, my experience is that this is a group that has essentially been abandoned by the state, not just my state. I mean, I, I'm in contact with a lot of people in, in, in the United Kingdom. You know, high-income countries around the world just don't know what to do with this phenomenon. And we have to reassure ourselves we actually have the capacity and the agency and the structures in place to deal with this problem. We need to assure ourselves and the public, actually, we are the equal of this issue. We don't need to run from it. No, exactly. And as you were talking, a, a particular case, a re relatively recent case came to mind that came across my desk. The perpetrator was actually a female and she was a mother. The victim, however, was not one of her children, but the child of somebody that she knew extremely well. Um, and she was successfully prosecuted, sent to prison. The attention 
and this is no criticism, the attention was on the physical aspect of what she was doing with this particular child, this young person. But her means of achieving what she wanted to achieve as an abuser was through social media. And the social media aspect was used in order to secure the conviction, which is understandable. But there was no attention applied to that as an issue. Though it was seen as an evidential issue, Mm. she's used social media, here's the evidence that we need to persuade the jury that she's guilty. Whereas it would have been extremely useful if there had been analysis or some research undertaken as to how that came about, how she was able to use it. So it may be that, picking up on what you're saying, the evidence is there, Mm. and it's good evidence, particularly when there's been a criminal conviction. Rather than going by anecdotal, you know, and surveys and so on, which are always vulnerable to those who say, ah, you know, this doesn't happen or is exaggerated, it's false memory, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, there's a lot of material out there that is good quality because there's been a conviction. I think that's right. And, you know, it's interesting to sort of look at the forensic evidence base for organised abuse, which is quite substantial. And yet you will still have academics, you will have professors. I mean, I've been I've been emailed from very angry professors who have worked in this area for a long time, claiming, well, there's never been a prosecution for this. There's not a single prosecution on the planet. And, and I'll go back to the and I'll say there's this prosecution, there's this one, and there's this. I mean, you just haven't looked. And so there's also a point here, which is that evidence is in the eye of the beholder. And when we are unwilling to bestow the label of evidence onto the existing and available data, then it always remains out of our reach. And I, I think when it comes to organised abuse, there's a range of reasons that people are resistant to just putting the evidence base together. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of what kids and adults have been saying since the 70s is now being validated by the social media account, you know, by the digital evidence that we're seeing online. It's really fleshing out some of these areas of abuse. And it's really sad that we had to wait for this these patterns of exploitation to migrate online to provide us with indelible digital evidence before we would just believe children and adults who are reporting their own experience in good in good faith and have no reason to lie. And of course, there's family courts um, where judges in the family courts, tragically, sadly, have to deal with a lot of obviously child abuse, child exploitation and so on. But those cases are very rarely reported. There's probably a whole wealth of information and evidence contained in these cases, mm. which in themselves provide a useful basis for further study and research. And so maybe there's a way that government needs to say there's got to be access to these cases because they're just, you know, a, a mine of useful information. I think that's absolutely right. With um, I've actually just been funded with a colleague by the Australian Institute of Criminology, which is a government agency. We're we're doing work with women who discover that their partner 
is a CSAM offender. So women who discover that their boyfriend or their husband has been accessing child sexual abuse material. We did a little bit of work in this area last year. But there's a few reasons why it's really important. One of the reasons is that by doing work with non-offending partners of offenders, we actually get a lot of that data that otherwise shows up in the family court because these women are typically then having to go through family court and, and child protection matters. But we're also starting to get a picture from the inside of what these guys actually look like in their homes, you know, rather than waiting for a report, you know, for them to describe themselves and, you know, their self-reports are not reliable, waiting for their kids to talk about what they were like. And again, a child has a particularly partial view. You know, it's been really important and interesting to actually hear from the non-offending female partner about what was it like to actually share a house with this guy some of the, the the offenders that they were partnered to were members of organised groups and the women had absolutely no idea until the police knocked on the door. So, you know, there, there's a lot of work that we can do to start to unpack these issues. I don't think we should be satisfied with the evidence that we've got, but we have to be willing to admit that we've got a problem and that we need to inquire in a particular direction. And when it comes to family-based exploitation, you know, it comes down to advocates like me to argue for the funding and to argue that's the direction we need to go in, despite the fact that law enforcement knows that so often when they're making a knock on the door because they're tracing back child sexual abuse material, they know that they're going to be dealing with the father and his daughter. On that note, what I'm going to say is I hope you can talk some more about this at the end of March at our NSPCC Hugh James Abuse Conference because I think it will be a very interesting and provocative talk that you are going to give to our audience and hopefully some of our listeners will tune in as well. So on that note, let's resume this conversation on the 30th of March. Look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, listeners. As always, if you've got any thoughts, comments, suggestions, please do get in touch. Until next time, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.